started to take a pottery class. So I get to go every Monday afternoon. It's perfect. It's because it's uh, during, it's on my day off. It's uh, when the kids are at school. Um, and it's lovely. I used to do pottery many, many uh, moons ago before I had kids. And then, you know, like everything kind of fell apart a little bit. Um, but I get to uh, kind of enter back into this challenge. So my kids have been very excited about me taking this class. And particularly the very first Monday, um, I came home from the class and the kids had just gotten home from school right before me. And they were waiting right at the door. And I opened the door and they were like, how was it? Where was your pottery? Where, what did you do all day? You know, where are the results of, of your work? What have you been doing? And so that is when I started explaining to them the process of creating a pot. So maybe you are familiar with the um, complexities of this process, but just in case you are, we're, we're just going to run through it um, really quick. It begins with finding the right kind of clay. Did you know that you can't just take any clay and, and make a pot with it? And so fortunately, we can buy it from a company who's taken it out of the ground and purified it and everything, and it's ready for the wheel. But you take that clay and you start to wedge it, which is kind of like kneading, but a little bit different. And, and the goal is you can't have one little pocket of air, like not. And so you knead and you, you wedge it and you wedge it until you know that it is um, completely solid. And then you go to the wheel and you plunk it on and it's now time to center the clay. And so Katie and I have commiserated because Katie did a, a pottery class earlier, uh, like in the fall. And she knows, and anybody else who's tried it, centering the clay is not easy. Anybody? this experience? Yeah. It's hard. And, and it's the moment when a lot of people walk away because you just, it's very hard to teach. It kind of, you have to just feel it. And, and you're basically getting that clay centered in the wheel so that you don't feel any wobble as it spins. And not anything, any movement. And so, you know, that's if you happen to be able to get it centered, then you're going to start uh, forming a hole and, and start forming um, the floor of the pot. Then, uh, once you've kind of got a floor, then you're going to pull the, the walls. And this is a long process. You, you don't do it just in one shot. You have to do it many times, you know, multiple times to get the right thickness and, and an even kind of um, thickness of the wall all the way up. And every time you better remember to compress the rim. And so it's this, this long process that requires a gentle touch, a consistency. And then, once you, the height is there, then you can start actually shaping what you want it to look like. And so you might, you know, when you see a vase that has like a big kind of belly, um, that's done at the very end of making the walls. So there's a shaping process that happens, and that's what makes the pot unique from any other one. 
finally dried enough, but not too much. Um, then it's time, it goes back in the mill, it's time to trim it, to tool it. And so you're taking excess clay out, you're giving the pot a, a foot, um, and you're giving some shape. And uh, like I did last week, I went right through the bottom of one of my pieces, and it kind of was the best one so far. And, and there it goes, right? So it's a process. Um, maybe if it's survived this long, then you might uh, be able to then kind of sponge it and get it kind of ready, and then it's ready to go in the, in the kiln to be fired. And this is the only the first time it's going to be fired. Did you know that the pottery is not fired just once? It has to be at least twice in order to, to create a pot. So it's still not ready to go. We're not going to go into, like, the glazing process. That's a whole other thing that involves wax and involves, you know, anyway. We won't go in there, but what I'm trying to say to you is there's a reason that after one class I did not come home with a finished piece in my hands, you know, uh, even though my kids were not impressed by that. So, today we are looking at another chapter in the story of the book, uh, the story of Esther. But at the same time, we are also looking at God's larger story the bigger picture of it, the process of God making a people for himself, shaping and forming a people. We're looking at the flow of God's big story, shaping a people who will live with him, who will live and look like him, who will um, live and walk with him. So in God's big story, I think, I wonder if we are often the kids who are waiting at the door <laughs> and saying and demanding to God, where is the finished product? Come on! <laughs> Don't you have something to show? And yet, God, who is often and multiple times, not multiple times in Scripture, he's compared to being a potter, is God in a process. It's a process of God's work, and it takes time. It's often longer than we think. Isaiah 64 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. So, today our rich kids read us the summary of the, this chapter of the story, Esther chapter 3, 1 to 15 verses, and um, we can see the horrible stuff that Haman, ah, the she worked! Did everybody see it? I, I was, like, questioning whether I should do it or not. Okay, if you haven't seen what I'm talking about, you have to look you have to go get a coffee, okay? And there's a little cheat sheet just so you can remember who you have to boo and who you have to cheer. And Haman is who you boo. Okay. Good. Okay. So Haman does some pretty horrible things. Now, we are going uh, to kind of now um, look back. We have to step way, way, way back when we look at the 
his locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. Whenever the Israelites planted crops. Does this give you a, it just gives you a little picture of, I mean, bullying would be out like a very mild word. So, we get a sense that over the course of history, this is the kind of treatment, the kind of ways that the Amalekites, um, what they did in their spare time, they grind other people into the ground. And so, when Israel uh, has their first king, uh, King Saul, see how we're moving along in the story here, King Saul, their first king, guess what? God instructs Saul he says, you have to wipe out the Amalekites. Again, this could be another rabbit trail, but this is, this is how the story goes. And I want you to listen to what Saul actually does in response to God's direct instruction. Listen to Saul's disobedience. So this is First uh, Samuel 15. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek to, uh, for opposing Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep, the goats, cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs. Everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Then the Lord said, Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. So you can read further in 1 Samuel 15 to get the full story, the full story, especially um, to get the story of how Saul acts completely oblivious of uh, his disobedience. Samuel confronts him. And, and Saul just acts like, what are you talking about, my babe? But what ultimately has happened here is the Amalekites have not been wiped out. And somehow, over the generations, a man named Haman, a descendant of King Agag, finds himself with a lot of power. And Haman is absolutely going to use that power. He's going to use it for exactly what seems to be like an obsession for him, and maybe has been an obsession for his ancestors over many, many generations. He's going to destroy God's So do you hear the revenge in Haman's order? His decree that he sends out across the whole empire to kill 
Jewish people and take all their stuff. Right? Do you hear the revenge? So, as you um, notice, and as we read the story of Esther, but then we read the larger story of God, the, the, the consistent thread, unfortunately, is the thread and the consistency of Look good. 
it to not be quite as fast. Okay? I kind of, kind of ruminating over all these things, I kind of threw out a couple of words, but really, you, these are not the only words that maybe would sit there. But I wonder if kind of underneath this disobedience for Saul is greed. That looks good to me. I would like that. I want that. And then the other kind of maybe grouping of would be like pride and power hunger. So pride says, I know best, or I, I've got this, I, I can do this. And then power hunger says, I would like to be in control. I want to make the call. I want to have control over this situation. So I wonder these would be some of the words that would sit underneath disobedience um, for King Saul. But when we fast forward to the Persian court and this story, this particular story of, of Haman and King Xerxes' interaction, um, we see some of the same things. We see, for example, greed. This is uh, in verse 8 and 9 in chapter 3. Haman approached King Xerxes and he says, there's a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep to themselves, keep themselves from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. Is that true? Uh, no. But that's what he says. So, it's not in the king's best interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they not be that they would be destroyed, and that and, and I will give ten thousand large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be dis- deposited in the royal treasury. So King Xerxes, first of all, likes the sound of getting a payment from Haman's wealth. This is a huge sum. It just sounds like ten bags of. But actually, scholars say that that amount of silver probably was like two-thirds of the empire's entire annual revenue in, in one kind of drop. So it sounded good. And so whatever sounded maybe off about what Haman was proposing, it kind of got greased over with some money. I know that never, ever happened. also lives with this kind of pride and power hunger, just like him. A large uh, part of what started all of this off, this what sparked the outrage for Haman, was that Mordecai would not... Good job, everybody. Mordecai, remember that's Esther's cousin? He would have bowed down to Haman. Right? And this outrages him. He cannot stand that one person doesn't give him what he wants. He feels this grand about himself, or maybe he's this insecure about himself, that he must have absolutely everyone's full support and praise. I know we to please everyone in order to be satisfied. He has to have everyone 
Abraham in order to be okay in his life. In addition, Haman very skillfully uses the lie that the Jews are not giving King Xerxes the respect he deserves. Haman just slips that in because he knows that that's going to dip into the well of King Xerxes' pride and power hunger, right? You're not getting all the respect that you deserve. This is how Haman gets things done. So it's a good thing that we never, ever use kind of the threat of approval or things like that, right? We never use that kind of stuff to get things done today. The sad reality is that politics, uh, this is right, the, the story of politics, whether it's Persian Empire, or whether it's our politics today, this is often the story of it. There's greed, there's power hunger, there's pride, all that mixed in. And because of how much our media kind of shows us all that, I notice that it's quite easy for us to get distracted to say, oh, it's terrible politics, right? Terrible politicians. Can you believe so-and-so would do such and such. And it's so easy to deflect that these things, these realities of disobedience, these realities of sin, and these, these places of our own greed and the places of our own power hunger and the places of our own pride can kind of get um, overshadowed, right? Because we can deflect attention to what's happening around us in the world. This kind of disobedience marks all of our lives. We want what we want, and we want to be in control. These tend to be underneath so much of the disobedience that we struggle with, the stuff that we do. So, before I send you home with this incredibly kind of heavy message of that's just what I want to hear today. I want to bring you back, I want to bring your attention back to the potter's wheel. We are the clay. going to 
seems as though the constant threat of the Amalekites wiping out God's people was a real possibility for many, many generations. And even though Israel didn't obey God when they first came into the Promised Land, and even though King Saul did not obey God, and even though we now find the people of God at death's door in the Persian Empire, because of all of that disobedience, God has never given up. And he does not give up now. God never walks away due to disobedience. He never says, that's it. You've had it. God continues to shape. He continues to mold. And here, a young girl ends up being the one to obey, and she's the one to save God's people all these centuries later. So I want you to hear that God's sovereignty, His triumph over evil, His plan of saving cannot be thwarted. It can't be wrecked. It can't be turned around. God is not going to let go. God is not going to give up. And then secondly, I want you to hear that God is not finished with you. He's not done. He's not done with you yet. And I don't know whether you're being centered on the wheel right now, or maybe you're being um, molded into a unique shape, or whether you're in the kiln being fired. I don't know exactly where you are, but I do know that God meets you every single day. In fact, every single hour. And he meets you with a new chance, a new opportunity to obey, which simply means to walk with him, to walk in step with him, to once again give your heart, give your will, give control over to the one who shapes you. To choose him over greed, <laughs> to choose him over all the stuff and the security, to choose him 